As we prepare to look at the end of Hebrews 6, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that our hope is built on nothing less, as the hymn writer says, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And Lord, I pray that you'd see to it that we place no trust in the sweetest of frames here on earth, but that we would wholly lean on your name. Father, we praise you this morning for hope. We thank you for granting to us a living hope, which the writer and Peter in his first epistle says that's a living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, the Bible says that we are without hope. With Christ, we have hope of eternal life. A hope to see Jesus one day. The hope to inhabit the courts of the heavenly city. Hope-filled people are needed in this world, Lord. Your church is called to exhibit this hope. To give the world a reason for holding on all the way to the finish line. To be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Uncertainty surround us on every side. None of us know what's coming on any given day when we wake up in the morning. But Lord, the hope described in the scriptures is something that readies us for whatever is yet to come here on earth. Living or dying, we can receive what you have for us knowing that we have a hope And it's firmly planted and rooted in Jesus Christ, our forerunner, our great high priest. I pray that you would bring about a renewal this day of who you are. Pray that you would remind us of who we are as followers of Jesus. And I pray that you would refocus our attention on the state of the world around us that's lost and in need of this hope. You've sent us on mission to tell others about this good news of Jesus. And with so many hurting and hopeless, I pray, Lord, that you would move us to be carriers of hope and messengers of hope to those who need to see you and hear your word. Hope is a precious commodity for the follower of Jesus. And may it continue to spring up in us, in our lives, as we make progress in the faith. In these days ahead. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Who according to the scriptures is our hope of glory. We pray in his name. Amen. Lee Strobel in his book. The Case for Hope. Very good book. Very short read. I encourage you if you've not read that. To, to read it, it's, it's excellent in this uh, theme, subject matter of hope. In, in this particular book, he gives, I believe, a great working definition for biblical hope. Biblical hope, he says, is the confident expectation that God is willing and able. God is willing and able. The confident expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill the promises that He's made to those who trust in Him. Let me say that again. Biblical hope 
is a confident expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill the promises that He's made to those who trust in Him. Pretty solid definition. Lines up with what we see here in the Word in terms of what hope is. Confident. It's a confident expectation. There's a confidence that resides in God. You know, there's a lot of people today who have confidence, but the confidence that they have is in themselves and what they can do. The confidence of hope is in God. It's this idea that you have seen Him work in the past. You've grown to know Him. You've recognized His course through the pages of Scripture. And having seen His marvelous works time and time again in your own life and in the lives of others who have gone before you, you have confidence in God. But it says that this biblical hope is a confident expectation toward God. I'd like you to think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those patriarchs. They were privy to God at work in the lives of His people. And time and again, God showed His mighty power. He intervened in miraculous ways. He showed Himself strong on their behalf. And we we see in the Scripture, Moses and Joshua and Samuel and, and David and Solomon, and the list could go on, of people who saw the works of God with their very eyes and heard the voice of God with their very ears. If you read the accounts of the missionaries, I know several of you like to read the missionaries. Several wonderful biographies to read about the missionaries. And you see this confident expectation toward God show up in their life. The Muellers, the Hudson Taylors, the Adoniram Judsons, the Watchman Knees. We could make a whole list of missionaries. And these were folks who operated from the standpoint is, hey, if God doesn't show up here, this thing's going to fall flat on its face. They're great examples of hope. You see, they were accustomed to seeing God at work. They were men of faith. Men who held tightly to God every step of the way. They were depending upon Him for all things. These were folks who understood the character and the nature of God. That He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's able to provide and protect in any and every situation. So let me ask you this morning. Is there in your own life this confident expectation toward God? And if so, how does that get expressed in your life? Your confident expectation expectation toward God. If it's not being expressed, I'd like to ask why. Why is there such a lack of confidence in, listen, the creator of the universe? Why aren't you living with an expectation that he's going to show up? You see, the biblical hope of which Strobel writes is this confident expectation that God is able and willing to fulfill the promises that he's made. And I believe most of us here believe that God is able to fulfill His promises. But I wonder how often we consider that He's also willing to fulfill them. Perhaps for this group here, the issue is not God being able. But maybe we don't think as much about Him being willing to fulfill these promises. 
Think about it. The God of heaven, holy, pure, righteous, blameless, He's willing, He's willing to fulfill His promises in the lives of those who are finite, moral, mere vessels of clay. Isn't it an amazing thing that God would want to show Himself in this way to such a sinful, unworthy creature? He's willing to fulfill His promises. And the end of that definition is that God is able and willing to fulfill His promises to not just anybody and everybody, but to those who trust in Him. And this is important for us to grasp. To those who trust in Him, to those who believe in Him, who live with an everyday awareness of God at work in their lives. He's both able and willing to fulfill His promises in the lives of His adopted children. Remember, we're family now in Christ. And God is able and willing to fulfill the promises of His Word in your life if you are in Christ. You see, biblical hope differs from worldly hope. What are some examples of worldly hope? Well, I hope the rain doesn't come tomorrow during our picnic. Or, I I hope the boss accepts my proposal that I wrote up last week. Or, I hope my team wins the game. Or maybe this one is closer to home. I I hope there's ice cream in the freezer when I get home later this evening. I, I hope... These things that we hope for. The hope of Scripture is a confident expectation that God is able and willing to fulfill His promises toward those who trust Him. And what we see in the whole of the Scriptures is that this theme of hope lines the pages. Old Old Testament, New Testament. It's a major theme in Hebrews 6 where we're at today as we finish Hebrews 6. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. This is where we left off last week. I want to to look at 11 and 12 because it sets the stage for where we're going into 13 and following. It says in verse 11, We desire that each one of you, each one of you, show the same diligence, the same diligence, to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The writer is calling each one here in the text to exhibit the same diligence, in this phrase here, to the full assurance of hope until the end. The full assurance of hope. I think for many of us when we think about this word hope, we think of future We think of things yet to come. And rightly so. Hope does point forward, but it also serves as fuel and catalyst for present living. I love the definition in Hebrews 11 of faith. And we'll get to it here a few months down the road. Now faith is the substance of things what? Hoped for. I'll read that again. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. If we think about that definition in Hebrews 11, 1, it should cause us to think about this word hope. 
See, to see hope only as a future commodity is also to ground faith's value in the future. We know, though, that the Bible calls us to walk by what? Faith. We're to walk by faith. When? Right now. We're we're called to walk by faith right now. Not in the future. Yes, if the Lord allows us to live a little longer, yes, then it would be in the future. But He's called us to walk by faith right now. By definition, walking by faith includes this hope. The substance of things hoped for. If we're called to walk by faith, then hope cannot be relegated solely to the future. You see, faith and hope are linked together then, aren't they? To say that you have biblical hope absent of faith would be contradictory. Or to hold to faith in Christ and abandon biblical hope wouldn't work either. Hope is part and parcel of faith's definition. You remember those words in Corinthians 13? What we oftentimes refer to as the love chapter. At the end of that love chapter, and now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. And while it is true, as Paul writes, love being deemed the greatest, we see faith and hope are in the same camp in terms of importance in the life of a follower of Jesus. They go together. They point toward the future, yes, but they are presently working together in the lives of those who trust Jesus. Remember the context we're working with here in the book of Hebrews. Some are contemplating the cost of whether it's worth the trial to cut ties with Judaism and walk forward with Jesus. One of the commonalities that we share with those in the first century is that of faith. You know, if you talk to people today and you come to have conversation with some folks in terms of why people aren't, why they're not stepping forward and believing and receiving and holding on to Jesus as their Lord and leader of their life, one of the things that you might hear is their concern over this whole idea of faith. They can't see it. They can't touch it. They can't grasp it. It's not, it's not tangible. And it becomes very difficult. I think in the same way, this, this whole concept and idea of faith as we see in the Scriptures, coupled with hope, one of the reasons why people have chosen not to become a Christian, not to become a follower of Jesus, is because it's predicated upon something they can't see. You see, Paul, in Philippians 3, he, he helps us understand a little bit of this concern. Because for Paul, this reliance upon his own righteousness, charting one's own works, holding on to one's good deeds, it's, it's sort of an easier thing to measure how many good things I've done. You can keep a little journal on all these good things that you've done. I had a conversation with someone a while back that actually shared with me that very idea of how he thought he was going to get to heaven. If he did enough good deeds, that was his mentality. Friends, the Bible definitely has a place for good deeds. But the place for good deeds is not so that we can be saved and be with Jesus in heaven. No, we are saved by grace through faith that we might then carry out these good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. That's Ephesians 2.10. 
But Paul substitutes his own righteousness and he comes to understand that his own righteousness was from the law. It was insufficient. And he desired now in his life a righteousness from God that was apart from the law. A righteousness that came only through knowing Jesus Christ by faith. See, biblical hope always requires faithful living according to the truths of Jesus Christ. Hope is not this nebulous concept of something yet to come. But what it does is it triggers a reason. It triggers purpose. It triggers motivation for living right here in the present. Hope is laid hold of, we'll see in verse 18. It's something we are to lay hold of. There's something to it that spurs us onward in the faith to press on daily. Striving to walk worthy of the calling that we received in Christ. And so the writer desires here in Hebrews, he desires to see his listeners have the same diligence to what end? To the full assurance of hope until the end. And you know, the idea here reminds me largely of this um, longevity. These words that he's been using throughout in Hebrews. Longevity, perseverance, endurance. The full assurance of hope culminates at the finish line. When you cross the end, don't you want to hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you desire to to cash in on the hope that you've been holding on to your whole life? Our hope, friends, is not found here in this world. You know, there are a lot of people today holding on to a lot of things that are grounded and rooted right here in the world. Do we know what the Bible says about this world? 1 John chapter 2 tells us that the world is what? Passing away. It's passing away. In Peter's epistle, 2 Peter, he's talking about how it's going to dissolve, it's going to burn up. Are we placing our hope on things here? Are we storing up treasures here on earth? Do you remember Jesus talking about that? Jesus says, hey, don't store up treasure here on earth. Store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. Where's your treasure? If your hope is found in things of this world, you're missing out on the full assurance of hope available to you. There's an everlasting component to hope. It doesn't end here. But what it does is it escorts you into the realities of being with Jesus, being in heaven, being with the saints in the great cloud of witnesses, being free from guilt and pain, tears and sorrow. How many of you are looking forward to the day when there's no more tears, there's no more crying, there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain? It's all going to be gone. The old order of things has passed. The new has come. That's what it's going to be like. That's the hope we hold on to. The Lamb of God will be on the throne, ruling and reigning, and you will experience those golden streets. You'll see those pearly gates. You're going to worship Jesus on the other side. I'm looking forward, friends, to receiving the full assurance of that hope. The Bible says that right now we see in a mirror dimly. But then... Face to face. Think about that. Seeing Jesus face to face. Seeing Him as He is. 
He says, now I know in part, but then I shall know as I am also known. There's a lot of things I don't know here, but but come that day, I'm going to know just as He knows me. I'm going to know. And with a view to experiencing this full assurance of hope, Peter asks a pertinent question. 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, since all these things are going to be dissolved, going to burn up the world here. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Looking forward to these things, Peter says, be diligent. There's that word again. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless. In other words, be filled with hope all the way to the end. Carry the hope with you all the way, the full assurance of it, until the end. Now there's a person in the Bible who I'm sure carried with him this hope. And in carrying with him this hope, there were many in the world around him still mocking him. You remember Noah? You remember how long it took him to build an ark? About a hundred years, give or take. Think about that. A hundred year project. God's told him to build this ark, given the specifications, measurements to build this ark. He and his sons are building the ark. And all the while, I'm imagining while he's building this ark, a lot of people are laughing and mocking him. What are you doing, Noah? It's never rained before. You see, hope is this confident expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill his promises. To do what he says he's going to do. And he carries that out through those who trust in him. I want you to notice here in Hebrews 6, these words in verse 11, diligence in the word in verse 12, sluggish. As you make progress in the faith, longing for the full assurance of hope until the end, know that sluggishness or dullness will not be tolerated. Living a sluggish life is not descriptive of all, at all of one who is walking with Jesus. Sluggish and a follower of Jesus don't go together. How is it that you can operate in a sluggish manner when the souls of your children, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers are at stake? How can you lead a sluggish life when your very own soul is at stake? See, when hope fills your soul, you begin to live differently. You begin to view the world as merely a road you're traveling on to get to your heavenly home. When hope captures your attention, you start to realize the significance of what it is to be a pilgrim and a sojourner here. The things of earth really do start to grow strangely dim. The things of earth hold less value. And we come to understand that they're only borrowed for a while. As we look forward to experiencing that full assurance of hope, may the Lord find each one of us faithful and not sluggish or dull of hearing. Instead, notice the text calls the listener to imitate. That's verse 12. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So don't be sluggish, he says, but imitate those who faithfully persevere and inherit the promises. You know, I heard someone asking this past week, A question. Would you want two of yourself in this world? Think about that for just a moment. 
This is, the call here is to imitate. Would you want two of you here? If not, that probably gives us a little window into some things that need some work in our lives, huh? When we think about, we oftentimes, when we think of this imitating, we're drawn to think about someone else that we are to imitate. But I would like to ask you the question, especially you parents, who's the most likely candidate to imitate you? Sons and daughters? It's almost a given. They're either going to imitate you for good, or they're going to imitate you for the not so good. But God's wired it and set it up in such a way that He He's placed these sons and daughters in your family to look to you. As to how to do this life. Notice it doesn't say, the text that is, it doesn't say imitate those who are in the highest positions of power. It doesn't say imitate those who have the highest paying salary. It doesn't say imitate those who are the best looking or the most talented. What kind of person are we to imitate according to the text? The one who inherits the promises of God. The one who is faithful and persevering. And you might say, well, give me an example. And maybe the listener was thinking that, and the writer immediately goes to an example, doesn't he? Now keep in mind, an earthly example is always going to have some holes in it. An earthly example is always going to come laden with sin and disappointments along the way. There are no perfect candidates to imitate here on earth. Amen? Apart from Christ who was here for 30, 33 years... No perfect candidates to imitate. But the writer here in verse 13 submits a well-known and revered example to his listener. Abraham! That's the example. Verse 13. Abraham. Remember that some in the church have not received this Jesus as leader of their life to this point. He's about to show them one of their own, Abraham. One to imitate and follow. You want to know who you can imitate and follow? Abraham. But he's going to explain to them why they're to imitate him. You see, Abraham is worthy of imitating because he trusted in God. He believed and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 says. The writer endeavors to show his listener, which includes us here today... Something that perhaps they had not seen about this father, Abraham. He's worthy to imitate because he was a faithful man of God. These are the people we are called to imitate as they are living their lives for God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4 speaks of Abraham and this time leading up to the promised child, to having Isaac, remember? And in Romans 4, 20-22, it says that Abraham did not waver at the promise of God. Abraham, you're going to have a son. And the text here says he didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief. But was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced 
This confident expectation. He was fully convinced that what God promised, he was also able to perform. Didn't know when. He didn't have the details on the how. Didn't know what it was all going to look like. But he had God's word. Friends, is God's word enough for you today? Or do you need something else? Abraham is the father of those who believe. If we look at just one chapter in Galatians, Galatians 3, 7 says that know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 9 says those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And at the end of Galatians 3, verse 29 says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see... Paul, as he's writing to the churches in Galatia, he's connecting Abraham with those of us in Christ. The father of those who believe. And so you might wonder why the writer here in Hebrews is using an Old Testament example for his listener to imitate. When he's already said, he's called them to cut the ties with their Old Testament way of doing things. What good is it then to bring up Abraham at this point? I like what MacArthur says in his commentary about this whole idea. He says he gives us three good reasons why Abraham submitted. First of all, Abraham is is a familiar connect point with the people to whom he's writing. The people would have known Abraham. But secondly, he submits Abraham to show that the Old Testament examples were really pointing toward the reality yet to come. And third, he submits Abraham To drive home the significant point of faith. Even in the Old Testament. Faith. Abraham believed. We see the conversation going on in John chapter 8. Jesus and and the Pharisees, the Jewish group of the day. and They're amazed at some things that Jesus is saying. This doesn't register with them. And they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? You remember what Jesus said? In John 8, 53 and following, He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said. And he saw it and was glad. Now we know what that ultimately led to. It led to them picking up stones again and attempting to stone him. Because they couldn't understand this connection between Abraham and Christ. That Abraham was pointing to the Christ. He was a man of faith, having received the promises of God, in whom all the nations would be blessed. Look at verses 13 through 15. The the example that's submitted is Abraham, but the writer is using the example only to point to someone better. That's the this is the the big idea behind the theme of what we're talking about in Hebrews. Anchored to someone better. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer is showing us this someone better. And he's he's recounting time after time after time how he's better than the angels, how he's better than Moses, how he's better than Aaron, the high priest, he's better than Joshua. He's better. And with this, that's, that's what this is all about as he keeps going through Hebrews. 
He's desiring to show the connection between Abraham and God and to show how the Messiah, Christ, fits into this picture. For when God made a promise to Abraham, the text says, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now I'm going to ask you a question from the text. Hopefully you've asked this question yourself. In what sense did Abraham obtain the promise? Because if you flip over a couple pages to the right in your Bible, you get to Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11.13 says that these all died in faith. These, he's just talked about Abraham a few verses prior to. Abraham's included in the these. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Not having received the promises. But here in chapter 6, it says that after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So, do we have a contradiction here? Seems like we're saying two different things. You know, all the times that we have struggled with what the text is saying in various points, it, it always and only has to do with our weakness. It never has anything to do with the Lord's imperfections. We look at the text. We see that Abraham saw the promises afar off. He didn't experience the fullness of the promises. Because the fullness of the promise led to the person of Jesus Christ. So in the sense of him not obtaining or, or seeing the promises... In that sense, yes, he didn't, he didn't see the fullness of what was promised to him back in Genesis 12. But I do believe it's fair to say, and we can see it in the scriptures, that Abraham did obtain a promise. 6 verse 15. You remember the promise that he did obtain in his lifetime? He obtained a promise of that son. Remember that son, Isaac? He obtained that promise. We see that it was at the age of about 75, give or take, where he gets word from God that he's going to have a son. Some 25 years later, at the age of 100, Abraham obtains the promise of God when his wife Sarah gives birth to Isaac. 25 years of waiting, 25 years of enduring, and in the midst of God's original promise and the actual birth of Isaac, God shows up in his life reminding him of his promise. And this is something that I love about God. You see, because the promise he originally gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, he shows back up in Genesis 13 reminding him of the promise. He shows up in Genesis 15 reminding him that a son is going to come from you and Sarah. The line is going to continue through you and Sarah in this son, this promised son. In Genesis 17, he shows up and reminds them again. In Genesis 21, the birth of Isaac happens. Just like God said it would. The words here in Hebrews 6.14, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Those words come from Genesis 22. On the backside of Abraham's test on the mountain with his son Isaac, you remember that? He's called to go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son, his only son, 
there on the mountain. This was the promised son, church. This is the one whom he'd been waiting for for years. And now God is testing him to go up the mountain and to sacrifice his son. And as he pulls out the knife, ready to obey what God's called him to do, angel of the Lord shows up, tells him to stop. And when he sees Abraham's obedience, on the backside of his obedience is when we see those words in Genesis 22. Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. I want you not to miss something here. Abraham is submitted, not just as an example to imitate, but he's also a representative of hope. See, he held on to a confident expectation toward God that he was willing and able to fulfill his promises to those who believe and place their trust in him. The Hebrew writer in chapter 11 says that Abraham concluded that God was able, God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Many of us wonder how in the world could Abraham go through such a thing? Because he had faith in who God was. He realized that even if his son died, God was able to raise him back to life. Looking at Hebrews 6, the emphasis now shifts away from Abraham and on to God. In particular, the text pinpoints the swearing of God by himself and that there was no one greater to swear by. Sort of... Difficult language for us, maybe hard to understand, a little confusing. I mean, doesn't it seem odd? Let's think about it for just a moment. Seems a little bit odd that God would need to swear at all. Amen? Huh? Why? Why does God need to swear? We think about it today as we read it, and that's the question that we come up with. Why? He's God. If his word is altogether true, and as Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God is pure, why then the need to swear or take an oath? What's God doing and what would he have us learn from these verses? Well, if you look at verse 16, it serves, I believe, as a connector verse between 13 through 15 and verses 17 and following. Look at verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. It was not uncommon in Old Testament practice to swear by something or someone greater. Okay? Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him, and shall take oaths in His name. Deuteronomy 10.20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, serve Him, to Him you shall hold fast, and take oaths in His name. See, taking an oath in the name of the Lord meant something. In fact, to not keep your oath in God's name was deemed to the Jewish people a violation of the third commandment. You remember the third commandment, don't you? Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Oftentimes we think of that verse and apply it to using God's name in a bad way, with bad language. But here in the context of Jewish culture, to not keep an oath in his name was to use his name in vain. And we also know that breaking one of those commandments was frowned upon greatly, wasn't it? (laughs) 
But while the scriptures make clear that no oath in the name of God is necessary for today, the Bible says in the New Testament that we're simply to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verses 33 and 37. He speaks about oaths. And he he starts it out by saying, you've heard it said, right? This is the way that you used to do it according to the law. And now I'm telling you, I remember I'm the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. He's the culmination of the law. He didn't come to abolish it, but he came to give its full meaning and understanding. And he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You you fast forward to the book of James and you see a similar idea in chapter 5, verse 12. The writer in Hebrews is drawing our attention to the way things worked in Hebrew culture. Men swore by the greater and an oath was deemed confirmation. It was confirmation for them to settle the dispute once for all. So in other words, an oath next to your word ended the matter. It was common practice to just suspend conversation. When you heard the one who was talking to you attach an oath to what he was saying, it was received as a good word in the discussion. Okay. End of dispute. That's the way men handled that. O'Brien says that the function of an oath is twofold. It confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. That was the way it was. And then we see in verse 17, thus God. Thus God. In light of how men received an oath from other men, taking it as good and sufficient, look what God does here. This is amazing what God does. Because He doesn't have to do this. But He does it anyway. The fact that He desires the heirs of promise to receive His Word. Here's what He does. He goes low. He goes low, which is just like His Son, Jesus, going low. Servant. He goes low to help His people grasp the truth. Aren't you glad that God has condescended, has come down, and He literally did that through Jesus, didn't He? He came down here to be among us. To show us who He is. And He's he's even drawn a little bit closer as He's given to us His promised Holy Spirit to abide within us. Grateful that God's done that. If you look at the text, look at verse 17. Thus God determining, a better rendering maybe willing, He was willing to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, to whom? To the heirs of promise, to his people, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, confirmed it by an oath, in an effort to make abundantly clear that his word is true and that his word can be trusted. He, here's what he does. He stoops to help man in his weakness understand He does what He does so that we might get it. Because, you know, we are being sheep in the Scripture room. Do you know anything about sheep? Sheep go astray, don't you? That's who we are. And we need God to do this very thing for us because we are weak in and of ourselves. And God, out of His great love... 
He desires that we get this. He's not made this truth of His in the Scripture hard to grasp or hard to understand. He wants, uh, listen, He really wants every single one of us to come to know who He is. He wants us to see the immutability of His counsel. What's that? Immutability. Long and short of it, has in mind with His unchangeableness. His his ability to not change. He's not going to change. In what regard? God will not change His position, says Weiss's commentary, as to His promise. Having made the promise, He will stand by it. He will not change His position as to His promise. Because that promise rests upon His counsel, which is also unchanging, immutable. God confirms His promise with an oath. The word confirmed there in verse 17 is used for a person who who mediates a dispute or a witness and a guarantee of a legal matter. It underscores the validity of God's promises. Listen, He is guaranteeing His own commitments. God's. Why does God go to such great lengths to confirm His own commitments? Keep reading in the text. Because what follows ought to point you back to the biblical hope that we spoke of at the beginning. Look at verse 18. That by two immutable things, which is, in which it's impossible for God to lie. Here, this is sort of hard to grasp, isn't it? I've always thought this passage in the Hebrew 6 is like one of those, I read it, what is he talking about? Am I the only one that ever thought that? I'm hoping that some of you also, that's been a thought of yours. But as you look at the text and you see that word immutable again, by two immutable things. What are these two unchanging things? The promise of God and the oath of God. The promise and the oath. Two unchanging things. And then he goes on, as if that's not enough, the writer inserts that it is impossible for God to lie. Listen, his character and nature secure the promises that are made. His character and nature secure the promises that are made. If we know who He is, we know then that when He speaks, He's going to deliver on what He speaks. Because of who He is. He's God. And this Jesus Messiah that's been mentioned here in the text, He's God's Son. Get this. He's God's Son. The exact representation of God, Hebrews 1 says. The fullness of the Godhead bodily, Paul writes in Colossians. The one who tabernacled among men for a time, John says in chapter 1. And in doing this gracious work, God desires that we might have strong consolation. Another word for consolation would be encouragement. We who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. That's verse 18. God does what He does for His glory and we get to be the beneficiaries. We get to be the ones benefit from what He does. That we might be encouraged. He does what He does. That we might be encouraged. We who have fled for refuge. I want you to think about that phrase for just a moment. We who have fled for refuge. It has in mind the Old Testament idea of the cities of refuge. Remember the cities of refuge in the Old Testament? God's design it, set it up. This is in the days of Joshua. After He destroyed and wiped out those that He... God called him to go take out. Then Joshua is the one who's 
uh, in charge of administrating and proportioning all the lands of the tribes, right? Well, in, in some of the cities that they designated for the tribes, there were these cities that were called cities of refuge. You know what a city of refuge was for? It was, it was for example, if two men were out in the field and they were going to go out in the forest, they were going to go chop some wood. And they took their axe. And one guy takes his axe and he goes back with it. And the axe head goes off and hits him and kills the other guy. Did he mean to kill the other guy? No, he didn't. It happened. Cities of refuge were set up in such a way that you could flee to one of those cities and be safe. And not... Not, not feel the wrath of what was to come when, when you had, yes, unintentionally, but nevertheless killed someone. There were these cities of refuge that people could flee to in order to be safe. It was a place of security for a time. It was a place to go to avert the vengeance and the wrath that was sure to come. Well, here in Hebrews 6, the writer is pointing to the reality The city of refuge was the shadow. The reality is this great high priest, Jesus. He's our refuge to whom we can run and be set on high. In Christ alone our hope is found, right? That's what we we sing about in the song. He's the strong tower to whom we can run. There is no more secure place to run than to Jesus. And, And the need to avert the wrath of God? You have a refuge and you have a place of security. In Jesus. See, the writer is going to show us how that's so here in just a moment. Notice the text says, We who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. To lay hold, Corteo, is to hold fast to, to, to keep a hold of firmly, to not let go. I love the picture and the image. And we see it in, in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. You remember the man who always sat by the gate called Beautiful? Remember that guy? He was always there. Peter John went to the temple one day and they were going to pray. And they saw this guy and he told that his arms and he wanted some alms. Remember Peter and John said, look at him and say, silver and gold we don't have. But what we have we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the man got up and he started not walking but leaping and praising God. And then in Acts chapter 3 verse 11 it says that this man who was healed held on to Peter and John. And all the people ran together and they were greatly amazed at what had happened. They held, he held on. He wasn't going to let Peter and John go. These are the men who freed him. And he's holding on to him. So this picture of the lame man holding on to Peter and John is a powerful image. It's helpful for our understanding here in Hebrews 6.18. You see, God has made every effort to see that we know Him and He's guaranteed His word that those who flee for refuge would do so to lay hold of the hope set before Him. Holding on to hope, not letting it go. Holding tightly to the hope set before us. God makes possible this hope and He he graciously provides a refuge in whom this hope gets embodied. And that's where the writer's going in the text. Look at the last two verses. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's picking that theme back up from chapter 5, verse 10. He's coming back to Melchizedek. Next week, we're going to look at the entirety of Hebrews 7, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this Melchizedek. 
But hope has been defined, we saw at the beginning, defined as the confident expectation that God is willing and able to fulfill His promises to those who put their trust in Him. Where does this kind of hope come from? It comes from a God of hope who has given to us Christ who serves as our hope. He's equipped us sufficiently with the Holy Spirit of hope who serves as our guarantee of God's love toward us in Christ. Now this kind of hope, according to the scripture here in verse 19, I want you to notice a few things about this hope and then we're done. Hang in here. Keep following along. This hope is described as sure. It's sure. We have as an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. The idea of the word sure is to not make something totter or fall. Something that cannot be made to fall down when it's put to the test. The idea of steadfast has in mind of sustaining one's steps as they go along. In other words, it speaks of something that does not break down under the weight of something that steps on it. It's steadfast. It's going to keep going even when something difficult happens. So what's he saying? West says in his commentary that this hope which the believing soul has in the Lord Jesus is an anchor of the soul which cannot be made to totter nor break down when put under stress. A hope that is sure and steadfast. A hope that serves as an anchor for the soul. Who wouldn't want this kind of hope? Why would you want anything less? When a sure and steadfast hope has been made available to you. Notice also this hope enters. Verse 20. Or excuse me, at the end of 19. It enters the presence behind the veil. It enters behind the veil. Now the terminology here probably reminds you of the veil which separated, remember, in the tabernacle, temple, it, it, it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Right? The veil. The writer, though, is pointing to the reality here and not the shadow. What do we mean? I mean he's pointing to a heavenly tabernacle. The, the hope in the text enters behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, Jesus. Listen to what Wade says here. This is so important for us to understand this concept of him having entered for us, the forerunner. He says the anchor of the believer's soul, his hope of eternal salvation is fastened securely to a rock within the veil of the Holy of Holies in heaven. Now this is big. This is big because we see now, he goes on, he says, that rock is Messiah, whom the writer now speaks of as the forerunner. He says, and here an entirely new idea is introduced, which is foreign to the ideas of the Levitical economy, the Old Testament way of doing things. Because you see, they were accustomed to the earthly high priests, those in the line of Aaron. And that, that high priest did not enter into the Holy of Holies as a forerunner. He entered into the Holy of Holies only as a representative of the people. He entered a place where the one in whose behalf he ministered, but they couldn't follow him. They couldn't come on the other side of that curtain. He entered the Holy of Holies in the stead of the believer, not as one cutting a pioneer path for him, which we've already seen Jesus do. See, the earthly high priests 
entered behind the veil on behalf of the people, but never was there a time when the people could follow Him inside that veil. God demonstrates His love toward us and makes His hope available to us through His Son's death on the cross and subsequent resurrection. Jesus is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And as our perfect high priest, He's not only our representative, but listen, He's made it possible for us to enter behind the veil of the heavenlies to be with Him. That's good news. That is wonderful news. That stirs up the hope in me. Listen, if you're placing your hope in anything or anyone else in this life, you are missing out on what God has available to you. What a shame, as he said already earlier in in Hebrews 2, what a shame to neglect so great a salvation and so great a hope. Strobel in his book, he says, our hope is only as good as whatever we anchor it to. Think about that. Our hope is only as good as whatever we anchor it to. He says in and of itself, hope doesn't have the power to change reality. We hope for this, we hope for that, and we might feel better for a while. We might fool ourselves into thinking that everything will be okay. But the only way hope has any impact is when we anchor it to the one who has real power. And not only does he have power, but listen, he also has the strong desire to help. Remember, he's not only able, but he is willing. We serve a God who is willing. Anchoring our hope to Christ, he says, means that we live with a confident expectation that He will therefore fulfill His promises to us. Hope has an anchor. It's an anchor of the soul. Sure and steadfast. It enters behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us with the idea that where He is, listen, where He is, we too will get to be with Him. It reminded me of John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus says these words before He goes to the cross. He's talking to His disciples. And He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. Listen, that where I am, there you may be, Also, we can be where He is only because He's done the work at the cross. He's the great high priest who's passed through the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. He's the one in whom our hope is anchored. There's a way, friends, to enter behind the veil of the heavenly city. I want you to know that you do not gain entrance automatically. I need to say that. You don't, you don't gain entrance automatically. It doesn't happen by default. Hope has entered behind the veil in the person of Jesus. But that hope is only available to those who have trusted Him as the leader of their life, as the forgiver of their sins, or to use the words in John 1.12, as those who have believed in Him have received Him as Lord. To those who believe and receive, the Bible says that He gives them the right to become children of God, heirs of the promise. So this biblical hope, what is it? It's the confident expectation that God 
is willing and able to fulfill His promises that He's made to those who trust in Him. Friends, I'd ask you this morning, is your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Do you hold firmly to a confident expectation toward God? To those who trust in Him here today, do you believe that He's willing and able to fulfill the promises that He's made? Are you able to say this morning that my hope is anchored in the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the captain of my salvation, the forerunner who has entered behind the veil of the heavenlies on my behalf, that I might be with Him one day where He is. And even as we think about that day, we're reminded about right now. But until then, what are we supposed to do? The song says that this weary world, with all its toil and struggle, may take its toll of misery and strife. This world can be messy. Amen? A lot of, lot of messy things we have to go through and work through here. The soul of man, Texas talked about the soul, an anchor of the soul, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. The song says the soul of man is like a waiting falcon. When it's released, it's destined for the skies. See, the soul of man anchored securely in hope to the rock of our salvation is destined for an appointment with the forerunner in the heavenly city. But in the meantime, until then, we, we hold on in hope showing diligence to the full assurance of hope, waiting for the day when our eyes get to see and behold the heavenly city. When the Lord calls us home, those who have this hope of the Scriptures, we get to see Jesus Himself. Don't miss out. I don't want any of you here to miss out on this. The Bible says God is our refuge and strength. How so? Through Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins, flee to Christ. Lay hold of the hope He offers for eternity. Don't let go. Hold on. Persevere. Endure to the end. Church, I want you to know that these scriptures were written that you might have hope. I didn't make that up. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Is your hope anchored in Christ this morning? Let's pray.